You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. And happy Easter. From, uh, from your homes, uh, from wherever you find yourself this morning, we're grateful uh, to have you joining us at Liberty Church on, on this day uh, that commemorates the day of days, the day that our great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, rose again from the dead. Uh, as Rachel was mentioning even earlier, in some ways, uh, everything feels different this year. Uh, we're unable to gather uh, for worship, and even seeing some of your faces on that video uh, just before the, the service began and, and what we'll play again after uh, the service today uh, just reminds me and reminds the few of us that are here just how much we miss one another, uh, how much we miss you, how much we are longing for the day uh, where we'll get to be together again. We're unable also to gather with family uh, and with friends, whatever your Easter traditions might be. Uh, some of us uh, have loved ones who right now in this moment are sick. Some of us uh, are out of work right now or have lost income from the, the economic effects of, of needing to shelter in place and shutting things down. Most of us, if not all of us, uh, are anxious about something. Most of us are lamenting uh, the loss or the absence of something we were looking forward to that now is, is no longer going to happen. So much this morning is different, and yet fundamentally, nothing is different. God is still the creator and the sustainer of all things. Sin is still the reason that all of creation and and our own lives are fractured and corrupted. And the invitation is still held out to each of us this morning to look to Jesus and to look to his finished work for salvation. So it is uh, among the great privileges of my life, uh, of my role as a pastor of this church, to proclaim to you this morning, the few of you here and the the more of you virtually, the good news that followers of Jesus have for centuries rested their entire lives upon. And that is that Jesus is alive. So this morning, uh, may your souls be comforted. May your souls be encouraged. May they be stirred up by way of reminder about the difference, about the truth of the resurrection and the difference that the resurrection makes in each of our lives and indeed in all the world. So let me pray for us this morning and then let me read today's text in the Gospel of Mark. Pray with me. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and the writers of Scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. And so we ask now that you would send your spirit to give us deeper insight, encouragement, faith, and hope through the proclamation of the Easter gospel. And we pray this in the name of the risen one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in the gospel of Mark this morning. It's our last uh, morning together, our last week together in Mark's gospel that we've been in since January. So we're in Mark chapter 16. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. 
And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Verse 8 of Mark chapter 16 uh, is the end of Mark's gospel. It's where Mark's account of the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus Christ ends. And if you're looking at your Bible this morning and you're seeing, well, there's actually a verse 9 through 20 right there, uh, hang with me for just a second. We stop at verse 8 because verses 9 through 20 actually are not found in most of the original manuscripts of this text, of this book. It appears that verses 9 through 20 uh, were added by a different author about 50 to 75 years after Mark wrote what he did. And depending on the version of the Bible you have, there might be brackets or parentheses around verses 9 through 20, uh, perhaps even a note explaining those brackets or parentheses. That's, that's the reason why those are, are there. Now, almost everything, that if you were to read verses 9 through 20, like nothing, nothing bad will happen to you, uh, almost everything found in those verses is found somewhere else in the New Testament. Uh, there is no central tenet of the Christian faith that is affected either by the presence or absence of, of those 12 verses. But the reason that we stop at verse 8 is because we always want to honor the Bible for what it is. The Bible is God's authoritative revelation of himself. It was given by the Holy Spirit through human authors who were trusted to write it down for us and the generations of people that have gone before us. And that means that you and I don't get to pick and choose what's included in Scripture, in the Bible. And if leaving out these last 12 verses sounds like we're doing that, like we're being selective, hang on with me for a second because we're, we're actually doing the opposite of that. See, there's the, there's the Thomas Jefferson approach to the Bible. Uh, most of you know Thomas Jefferson or know who he is. Uh, founding father, principal author of the Declaration of Independence, the third president of the United States. Later on in his life, Thomas Jefferson crafted his own version of the New Testament that he called the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And it basically uh, was a cut and paste of Jesus' teachings and his examples, but it excluded all of his miracles. It excluded anything supernatural, including any reference to the resurrection. Jefferson's approach to the Bible was to cut out the parts that were far-fetched for him, that were hard to believe, or the parts that he didn't like. And we might look then at his example and say, well, obviously that's not honoring to the Bible as God's authoritative revelation if you're going to cut out parts you don't like. When we leave out the last 12 verses of Mark 16, uh, that's not a Jefferson-like selectivity. It's actually instead an honest effort to understand what was actually here to begin with. Adding something that wasn't there in the first place is really just as much an error as cutting out the parts that you don't like. 
So when a substantial amount of evidence tells us, and has told scholars far more brilliant than I am, when an amount of evidence tells us that these last verses were not part of the original manuscripts, we shouldn't treat them like the original authoritative revelation of God. Instead, we should take what is really there and we should seek to live in light of that. And I share that with you this morning, um, not to, to add just some kind of random new tidbit of information. I share that first because I want you always to trust Scripture for the reliable count, account that it is in its original form. To not feel tempted to cut parts out or to, to add parts. I also share that with you because I found myself wondering, why would someone, 50 to 75 years later, go back and add this last section, especially when they're adding content that's included in other places in Scripture? But after thinking about that for a while, I think I understand the motivation. I think I understand it. See, if the original Gospel of Mark ends, like we read it this morning at verse 8, then it's the only one of the four Gospels in our Bible not to include a human encounter with the risen Jesus. It's the only one of the four Gospels not to include that. The young man sitting there, the angel, tells these three women in, in Mark 16, Jesus is no longer dead. He's risen. So go tell the disciples and then go to Galilee. You will see Jesus there. But if Mark's Gospel ends at verse 8, we don't get to see any of that play out. Instead, and maybe it felt this way as I read it a moment ago, it ends abruptly. It ends awkwardly. It ends with these three women fleeing silently and fearfully. Mark's account, in other words, ends at the empty tomb. And here's the whole point of this sermon this morning. An empty tomb is not the same thing as a risen Savior. Typically, we think about these two things together. We think about these two things together because often uh, they mean the same thing. The empty tomb points to the fact that Jesus is alive. But today, but this Easter morning, I invite you to consider the difference. That the empty tomb by itself is insufficient. Regardless of your background or your faith tradition or the, the lenses through which you look at the world, you almost certainly believe that the empty tomb is a historical fact. You have no problem believing that these women and the disciples went to this tomb where Jesus' body had been laid and that the body wasn't there anymore. Nobody, nobody really doubts the empty tomb. The differences come in how you explain its emptiness. And what about the effect of merely an empty tomb? How do Jesus' followers respond when all they have is an empty tomb? Here's what the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us. Mark says here they were astonished. They were astonished. Uh, they were confused, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel. Later in that same text, it says those disciples are perplexed. There's some sadness. Mary is weeping in John chapter 20. There's fear. There's fear. The women here in Mark 16 are alarmed and they're trembling and they're afraid. And Matthew and Luke in their Gospels record the same thing. Now these three women might be fearful, but their fear actually pales in comparison to the fear of the disciples. The eleven who we read in John's Gospel are meanwhile hunkered down in a locked room for fear of the Jewish leaders. Maybe they were just sheltering in place. Maybe they were just sheltering in place. 
There's skepticism and doubt. And Luke's gospel says, it seemed to the disciples an idle tale. There's curiosity in John chapter 20. There's, there's even, think about this, there's even some hope, some wishful thinking. Peter runs to the empty tomb. And John in his gospel makes sure to remind us, he got there first though. John beat Peter, got there first. There's marveling in Luke's gospel. There's joy mixed with the fear in Matthew 28. And the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, they say, did not our hearts burn within us? This is how Jesus' followers respond when all they have is an empty tomb. And yet, these same people will devote the rest of their lives to spreading this news and to making more followers of Jesus. Most of them at the cost of their own lives. So something happens to transform these responses, the list that I just read you, to to that kind of devotion and passion and zeal. And the something is an encounter with the risen one. That the tomb is not just empty, but that Jesus actually is alive. We don't get that in Mark's account. And that's almost certainly some of the motivation behind someone going back later and adding the words after verse 8. Because the best you can do with an empty tomb is fear and astonishment and a certain form of hope. But there is a huge difference between the kind of hope that's based on the empty tomb and the kind of hope that's based on the risen Savior. It's the difference between subjective hope and objective hope. The best that you and I can do with an empty tomb is subjective hope. What is that? What is subjective hope? Subjective hope is a form of hope which comes from wanting something to be true, even believing something to be true without really knowing if it is. Subjective hope is the disciples on the Emmaus Road, their hearts burning within them. They want it to be true. They want Jesus to be alive again. They want to believe that. Is that enough? One of my favorite scenes in The Lord of the Rings, and it really would not be an Easter like post-1960 if you weren't referring to at least one of the Inklings, and we've got two in Tolkien and C.S. Lewis for you uh, this morning. One of my favorite scenes comes at the end of The Two Towers. Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee have again narrowly escaped death. And Frodo laments to Sam. He says, I can't do this. I can't continue on in this quest to destroy the ring. And Sam, the ever faithful companion that he is, he laments too. But then he says, in the great stories, the ones that really matter, the people in those stories have lots of chances to turn back, but they don't because they are holding on to something. And Frodo turns to him and asks, what are we holding on to, Sam? And it's a huge question because at this point in the story, there's still a lot of the journey to go. Frodo is grasping for hope, hope that will strengthen him to carry on in the midst of impossible circumstances while this journey remains yet unfinished. What are we holding on to? And Sam responds that there's some good in this world and that it's worth fighting for. That line has always prompted me to consider the difference between subjective hope and objective hope. Subjective hope is something that stirs up the feelings of hope in us. It's it's wishful thinking regardless of the truth. But objective hope 
is confidence in some true fact that fundamentally changes the trajectory not only of our lives but of the world itself. And Sam's reason for enduring and for pressing on is his belief that there's some good in the world that's worth fighting for. But that begs two questions. Number one, is it true? Is there actually some good in the world? Is there actually something worth fighting for? And then second, does it matter if that's true? See, in one sense, in the subjective sense, it doesn't really matter if that's true or not. Even if there really is no good in the world, even if there is nothing objectively worth fighting for, Sam's hope, Sam's belief that there is, compels him to continue. But in the other sense, in the objective sense, it does matter. If Sam's wrong, then their whole journey is futility. Their feeling of hope might keep them going, but ultimately, evil will triumph, and they won't have accomplished anything except slightly delay the inevitable. And it would also make a terrible trilogy out of Lord of the Rings. Like, you would not spend 12 hours of your life to watch that for it to end that way. But this is similar to the situation that Jesus' followers find themselves in early that Sunday morning, almost 2,000 years ago. It's the third day since Jesus had died and was buried. Their movement seems to have come to an end. They're sad and they're dejected. Though Jesus promised he would rise again, it's really clear that none of them are expecting that. None of them are expecting that. Uh, These three women, you don't go out and buy spices to anoint a dead body if you're expecting a resurrection. But then they encounter the empty tomb and they they experience confusion and fear and doubt and astonishment. They have a glimpse of hope. But is it real? Is it based on reality? Or is it merely wishful thinking? Fast forward a few more years to the Apostle Paul. Paul spends years persecuting the early followers of Jesus Christ. But then the risen Jesus appears to Paul and completely transforms him, so much so that he becomes one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. No doubt you and I owe, most likely, if we could trace the lineage, our own faith in Jesus to the work that Paul did centuries ago. And after that transformation, think about the things that Paul goes through as a missionary. Think about things he goes through for the sake of the good news of Jesus. In one of his letters to the church in Corinth, he lists out his resume of suffering. Imprisonments, countless beatings. He's been near death. He experienced this penalty, this Jewish penalty of the 40 lashes minus one five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He goes on to say he was in constant danger. He was without food. He was homeless. On and on he goes. In the face of these circumstances, how did Paul endure? How would he have answered Frodo's question, what am I holding on to? And Paul's answer in his letters over and over again is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul believed that God created human beings for a relationship with him. Paul also believed that human beings had rebelled against God. His own past persecuting God's people, the followers of Jesus, made that undeniable. Paul believed that our rebellion fractured our relationship with God and it carried with it a penalty of death, eternal separation 
from God. But in spite of this rebellion, Paul also believed that God loved his people so much that he took on flesh in the person of Jesus. That as fully God and fully man, Jesus lived the perfect life that humanity could not. And after living a perfect life, Jesus died on a Roman cross to pay our death penalty for us. Paul then became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. He was still persecuting the church when he knew there was an empty tomb. But when the risen Jesus met him on the Damascus road, he became convinced that Jesus is alive. Jesus' resurrection for Paul then proved that he had accomplished a decisive victory, not only over death, but over the sin that caused death in the first place. Consequently, Paul believed we can now be reconciled to God. And that's why Paul speaks so often of his hope in the resurrection. So clearly, clearly, the resurrection is Paul's subjective hope. It allowed him throughout the rest of his life to live beyond his circumstances. It convinced him that his life and his struggles and his suffering was not pointless. But is that true? Is that true? And does it matter if it's true? See, in our culture, where truth is often considered relative, many people in our day will look at Paul's hope in the resurrection and they'll conclude that it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. What matters is simply that Paul was convinced of it. That's great, we might say in our modern vernacular. Paul was living his truth. Paul was living his truth and you can live your truth, and I can live my truth, and we'll all be happy because of it. But Paul does not think that way at all, and he will not let any of his readers who take him seriously think that way at all. He instead hangs everything, everything, on the objective historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Jesus' resurrection is Paul's subjective hope, indeed. But he insists it is not merely subjective. If his hope is not based on an objective historical fact, then his whole life and faith are futile, and everyone who believes this, he says, is to be pitied more than anyone else in the world. Now that is a drastically different substance of hope than the one demonstrated merely by an empty tomb. So though Mark's gospel ends here, we know from the other three gospel accounts and from the rest of the New Testament that there's more to the story. That Jesus is the risen one. And the proclamation of the apostles in the decades after these events, the proclamation of the church for centuries since, is never merely the tomb is empty. The proclamation is always, he is risen. He is risen indeed. One of the greatest gifts of Easter, think about this with me this morning, one of the greatest gifts of Easter is the clarity the resurrection brings. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he did not, then who cares about everything else? Be like Thomas Jefferson. 
take whatever you like from Jesus' teachings and example, whatever you find subjectively helpful, and just leave out the rest. But if he did rise from the dead, if he did appear to these women and to Peter and to the disciples and to groups of 500 people over the next 40 days, then he is unlike anything you or I have ever encountered. If the resurrection is true, it means we cannot treat Jesus like a buffet line, picking and choosing the things that we're okay with. The historical fact of the resurrection requires us to either believe and follow or to reject and to walk away. One way or another, it will force us to get off of the fence. And in a life filled with complexities and gray areas, in a life filled with decisions that have so many layers and such information overload, are we not desperate, even in this moment, for this kind of clarity? The resurrection either happened or it didn't. And the way that we examine the evidence and the way that we answer that question becomes then the fundamental lenses through which we see everything else. The abrupt end of Mark's gospel in verse 8 leaves it open-ended. For what? For what? For every hearer and reader of these words to respond for herself or himself. Will I live merely as though the tomb is empty? Or will I live as though Jesus is the risen one? Some of us live our lives as though all we have is an empty tomb. Paralyzed by fear. Constantly weighted down by sorrow and sadness. Where any kind of hope we might experience is merely subjective, wishful thinking that there maybe is something worth living for, that things might turn out okay, that there's meaning and purpose for things that happen in our lives. In the midst of a pandemic, as we're in right now, living as though there were only an empty tomb means the anxiety and the fear of this moment, of these days, will crush us. It will lead us in these days to ignore Jesus' words that we cannot add a single moment to our lives by worrying. It will lead us to hoarding. It will lead us to self-preservation, to ignore everything Jesus taught us about loving others, about considering others more significant than ourselves, about laying down our lives for our friends. We are meant to live not as though the tomb is merely empty. We are meant to live as though Jesus is the risen one because he is. The resurrection is the objective hope which forever changes the world and forever changes the course of our lives. Fear and sorrow and doubt and tragedy, those substantial and perhaps even substantial right now in these moments, can be met with the refrain over and over again that he is risen. He is risen. What are we holding on to? What are we holding on to? We are holding on to the reality that Jesus is alive, reigning at the right hand of the Father and reconciling the world to himself. That Jesus Christ, the firstborn from among the dead, is making all things new. And that we, his people, by our prayers, by our words, by our acts of selflessness and sacrifice and courage, by our love, get to participate with him in his making all things new. In encountering the empty tomb in Mark 16, if your heart burns within you, praise God for that. Praise God for that. 
you are on the right road. What I would say to you this morning is just don't stop there. Don't stop there. Don't settle for merely an empty tomb. Like these three women, like the early disciples, like Christians for centuries since, become convinced that Jesus is the risen one. And like them, let your life then explode in a trajectory of joy and boldness and faithfulness because of that. Friends, this Easter and always, may wishful thinking give way to real hope. May mere astonishment give way to wholehearted devotion. May fear give way to courage. And may self-preservation give way to love. For what we celebrate today is not merely an empty tomb, but that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is the risen one. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. With joy, we praise you, gracious God, for you have created heaven and earth. You have made us in your image. You have kept covenant with us, even when we fell into sin. And we give you thanks this morning for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who by his glorious resurrection overcame the power of sin and gave us new life. And therefore, today, from wherever we are, we join our voices with the saints and the angels and, all, and the whole creation to proclaim the glory of your name. For you are risen, you are alive forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.